Hi, um, I'm here with Michael P. Um, Mike, I wanted to, Michael, I wanted to thank you for, for sharing the story, for um, agreeing to, to talk about your experience with hospice with your father. Um, Michael, why don't you give us a little bit of background, a little bit of background about your dad, um, yeah. and, and tell us your story. Yeah, my father uh, was from Italy. He was um, almost 89 years old uh, when he passed. Um, he was a very active senior. He was always in the garden, always taking care of the house. Um, he was a Korean War vet. Um, so he was just a very strong 89-year-old man, almost 90-year-old man. Um, and he fell um, in the middle of the night um, in June of 2018, broke his hip. We went to the hospital um, and he had surgery. He had some complications with like uh, uh, the dementia from being in the hospital and from the medications. He also became impacted. Um, but we got through that. And then after about five or six days, we went to a rehab facility in Brooklyn. And um, it was kind of a slow recovery. Like he's fallen in the past over the last couple of years. And he would kind of bounce back really quickly. But this time he wasn't really like bouncing back and taking the rehab as well as he had in the past. He also became anemic, et cetera. So I was there every day with him um, for about six weeks and he eventually started walking again, um, had a walker, et cetera. And we were planning on his coming home in August. He fell in June of that year. And so I was planning all the Medicaid and all the home care because he would need assistance, et cetera. Um, and then one day I showed up at the rehab center and he wasn't feeling well. Um, his stomach was hurting. He was in a lot of distress. Um, they didn't really notice it. They had him sitting by the, um, by where the nurses were because he kind of like would be a fall risk and sure. they, they left him alone in the room. He would get up. Um, and so I brought him back into the room and he was in severe pain. Um, and, you know, one of the issues that happened there was that his urologist didn't come back to see him in like a month. And I think the catheter was infected. Um, so his urinary catheter really became infected. I spent like most of the night there with him until they still didn't take the catheter out. And I was pleading and begging for them to take it out. And then eventually one of the nurses did. Um, and uh, they... Uh, did all these tests, whether he had a UTI or pneumonia, et cetera. Um, and they kept saying, no, we can treat him here. I said, don't you think I should bring him to the ER? Shouldn't I bring him to the hospital? And they were basically adamant about not doing that. And I think part of that is the way nursing homes and rehab centers work. They, they get like kind of penalized when patients go back to the hospital. It doesn't look good on their statistics, you know, like uh, transfers to hospitals. And yeah. so they try to treat them there. And I spent nine days with him in that rehab center and he just continually, he just got worse. Um, he was just not himself, fever on and off, uh, just bedridden and his energetic self was gone. And so, on the ninth day, when I saw him, I said, I'm taking him out of, I'm, I'm taking him to the ER. And I had to do a forced, um, evac, uh, I forget what it was, discharge. Like I had to fight with the nurse oh, you know, at the rehab center. Yeah. yeah, and even the doctor said, you know, I'm telling you this on the side. She was a nurse practitioner, but uh, he does not look good. And 
he it's 50 50 if he's going to make it and i'm like you're telling me this after nine days you know it's like and when i heard that i was like i'm he's out of here and so uh i got him finally discharged we went back to the hospital where he was operated on which was new york presbyterian and um they his heart was in complete afib uh his heart was racing um etc and then they finally realized after a few tests that he had MRSA and the MRSA went to his heart and he had endocarditis so which is a really serious heart infection mm -hmm. um and so they were giving him all these drugs and antibiotics etc but he had stopped eating and drinking and he just didn't um he wasn't uh peaceful at all he was crying uh anxious um just not himself and so after about a week and a half in the hospital like they were basically saying that you know the only thing that can potentially work for him is eight weeks of iv antibiotics mm -hmm. um that can potentially uh, cure the infection um but we would have to send him back to uh, the rehab center with a pick line a catheter he now had a stage three stage four bed sore uh he was completely delirious and out of his mind and uh they wanted to put in a feeding tube and when i heard feeding tube i'm like uh i i can't see my father with a feeding tube you know it's like he was just like this like i i just like i i kind of freaked out when they said feeding tube and that's when i started to realize like what am i going to do and during this time my brother was also in the hospital and I was commuting back and forth between the two hospitals and he wasn't able to really help me with decision making. My mother elderly wasn't able to help. And so I was just trying to understand what the best thing for him would be. And so I started asking them, uh, the, the geriatric doctor about hospice. Um, and so she said that, you know, that they would be able to do inpatient hospice there. So my fear was transferring him would just agitate him even more and it would have just caused more distress. And so um, I said, okay, so you would, uh, you would uh, be open to the idea of that if he's non-responding to the treatments. And so I had that option and I kept talking to all the different, because there's so many players in the hospital system. And so there's residents and interns, cardiologists, et cetera. And I kept asking them, you know, what would you do? And they all kept saying, even though the recommendation was to go back to the rehab for eight weeks, they were saying he would need a miracle to survive. Um, you know, he's not eating, uh, his kidneys are declining, et cetera. And so it just got to a point where I didn't want to see him suffer anymore. And I just felt like I've heard good things about hospice. And I felt like maybe that would just give him some peace. Um, and so I decided on hospice. Um, and so that was like on a Monday, they started giving him morphine hourly, uh, Haldol every four hours. And I'm sorry, Haldol twice a day and then at a van every four hours. And so I, my, my experience with hospice was basically thinking that it would be something where the person would still be uh, awake and conscious and be able to speak to you and be able to um, have a very peaceful death, et cetera. This is 
the part of hospice I didn't like so much because once they started the meds, he never woke up. And so we never really had a chance to say goodbye. Um, and so the pros and the cons are the pros were he wasn't suffering anymore. Um, he wasn't aware of his pain, et cetera. Um, but the con is, you know, we never said goodbye to him and he never really uh, was able to say goodbye to us. Um, and so that's kind of stayed with me for 18 months, um, that part. Uh, it, I've gone through uh, grief counseling. I've gone through uh, the personal counseling with it. Um, but it doesn't go away, that part, because right before they started the meds, he was uh, asking me to take him home um, in his delirium. He was asking me to take him, take him home, get him out of bed, et cetera. But um, I just felt like that was with MRSA, which was very contagious, et cetera. It just would have been too much. And so I am... I, I, I'm torn about it. I'm grateful that it resolved his suffering, but I also question whether maybe I should have tried the eight weeks in the rehab, even though he was, he probably would have suffered a lot. Even if he got better, it would have been a long process for someone at that age. So I'm, I'm on the fence about it. I'm mm -hmm. on the fence about it. Yeah. And it's, it's hard, Michael. I mean, you can, unfortunately, hindsight you can go back and question every single decision yeah. you make and right you're never going to know you know what was what was right um yeah you just right. have to know exactly. you're working with making the best decision with the information you have at that yeah time. yeah 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 i mean i feel like i'm more equipped now to ask better questions for mm -hmm. like let's say it's my mother like where i would maybe say don't use as much medication so that she's more conscious so that i can see if she's able to like be able to um, speak to us without having pain and, and in distress. Um, I might try that or I mean, maybe being not being conscious is a good thing too. So I'm torn about that as well. You know, yeah, And that's a good thing you bring up. Um, if, if someone were in your shoes and they yeah. were um, had that choice on the table, they, they needed to make a decision about hospice. Is there any questions or any any suggestions that you would have for them? That... Yeah, I mean, that's the first thing. I mean, I'm part of that many Facebook groups with hospice, and I always say, just make sure you understand, you know, what um, what the medications can do. You know, you might not be able to wake them up uh, if they're giving them large doses or, or even therapeutic doses of these medications. They may not wake up again um, and just you know, potentially ask if they could, you know, titrate up so that they don't, uh, um, so that they don't like go unconscious like quickly, um, you know, and also potentially um, ask if you can continue with other treatments while you're on, like we were uh, told that um, he had to stop the antibiotics because of the Medicare. And so the, the, medic uh, the antibiotics are life-saving in his case with endocarditis. Um, so, uh, just being aware of that, like, I wasn't even aware that they did that. Like I read it, I got all the medical records and I read it afterwards. Um, so I wasn't even aware, um, of that piece. And that piece also was hard to read because 
you feel like that was his lifeline, um, the antibiotics, and you don't realize that they're stopping them because that's kind of a Medicare stipulation, I think. Yeah. Um, so it's just, uh, but the, the, the way uh, the person is medicated, I think is probably the most important. Um, I was also told by the doctor who I actually loved that he would be conscious throughout the whole you know, process and that never happened. I, I did a post uh, mortem with the hospice director where I spent actually about an hour going through his case, you know, um, with her. And she, you know, really does feel that he was at end of life. Mm -hmm. um, but because that's the part that I question. Um, and he, she feels that that doctor should have never told me that he would be conscious throughout because. It may not even be the medications doing that. It may just be the end of life. Um, so it's important to understand what the doctors are telling you and ask about, you know, that part, because that's the part that's the most important part, whether they're going to be conscious or not. Right. So ask questions and manage your expectations. Yes. Manage expectations for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because he never woke up. He spent three days in inpatient hospice and once the medication started, he never woke up, never woke up. And he was awake before the medications. Right. So, he, but yeah. in pain and delirious and suffering. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, um, you know, Michael, thank you very much for sharing the story. You're welcome. Ed, You're welcome. Um, I appreciate the advice and I'm hoping that, you know, I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad hospice exists. I am, even though like I've, had some trauma with it uh, and issues with it. The fact that you know that there is something out there that can alleviate someone's pain during the dying process um, is great because just thinking about people spending eight or nine or 10 weeks suffering in a rehab or in a nursing home where they won't get like palliated care. They're not going to give them like when you're when someone is being treated, they're not going to give them medications that will address the pain in a substantial matter because then that can kill them and they're open to lawsuits. And so um, the fact that they're able to tolerate or manage the pain better in hospice, I mean, it's just it's good to know. It's good to know. Yeah. And, and I, I appreciate you sharing because I think like we were talking before the interview, um, there are so many people out there who don't understand hospice. I know, right. you know my person my I personally didn't understand it before I started working with hospice um, right. that these benefits even exist you know yeah yeah no there are definitely benefits uh, but you have to be ready for it too you have to be ready for it and I think with me I was so scared about sending him back to a nursing home and with a feeding tube that I, it felt like it was the only like humane choice for him it was only the only humane choice for him at his age so you know but still it's very difficult you still deal with the um the decision because you're deciding uh, you know on someone's life yeah. you're deciding someone's life you know so you live with that you do live with it so I mean, it sounds sounds to me that you uh, you made the best decision that you could at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Could I ask you a question about you? Sure. You the point, um, you're deciding. Did your dad ever um, do a living will or advance directive? He did, but that was like 40 years ago, and he didn't even know what was in it. 
Okay. He had no idea what was in it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But with my mother, it's different, you know, because I've asked her specifically over the last few years. I know she doesn't want a feeding tube. I know she doesn't want any of this stuff. With her, even though it's going to be hard, I know exactly what she wants. I know exactly and what she doesn't want. And you think you know, that, so. that would make it easier to make the decision? I think it will make it easier. I mean, with her, like I mentioned to you, she was sick with the virus, coronavirus recently, and I was already thinking, oh, God, I'm not going to have them put her on a ventilator at her age at 89. And so I was already, I actually called the same hospice that my father was in to see once she came home, if um, I could transfer her, even though she was not at a point where she was dying. Um, if at some point I can transfer her to hospice when I felt like it was more needed because there was no way I was going to call an ambulance and send her to a New York city hospital with coronavirus. And without us being there, I would much rather have hospice come to the house and bring her oxygen. Right. You know, so I have that as a plan B if this gets, this pandemic gets worse. Right. So, well, yeah, I'm glad that you, you your mom's doing better and, and yeah, yeah, over that. Um, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Good, but you know, thanks, thanks so much, Michael. And uh, is there anything Thank you. to add in there? No, no. I just think that you know, just do a lot of research, uh, talk to a lot of people. I found the Facebook groups really, really, really helpful because a lot of people are either working in hospice or been through hospice, and I think that people can really give you a lot of guidance. I've had post-mortem post after my father died i've used those facebook groups as grief therapy and a lot of people just confirmed you know that my decision was the right decision um sharing their own stories so i just think you have to really be educated about all this stuff right right and i'm yeah. glad that you utilize the groups because they are they are there for you know support and i think we learn a lot from each other just by you know asking our questions yeah our yeah yeah for sure all right. Well, thank you very much. Take care. Thanks, Michael.